Today, I would like to begin first, actually, by apologizing for how long my last few sermons have been. I know they have been a bit beyond the normal length of time that we like to go, and uh, the biggest reason for that is just that, honestly, the texts have been very long and very complicated and confusing. But I am also aware that this week we have a annual pre-meeting after the service today, and the next week we have the annual meeting, and then two weeks after that we have a communion and fellowship meal. So I'm aware that I need to start shrinking things down a bit, and that my goal is starting this week, if at all possible, the sermons will start to be more the actual like normal length that Caleb and I try to do, which is 30 to 40 minutes closer. Or these last few weeks they've been around an hour which I apologize for that, and I also thank you for bearing with me um, as we've worked through texts I know that have not been the first ones that we go to in our Bible reading plans, um, but I hope that how we've worked through them together has helped you to understand them a bit better. I know it's been super helpful for me um, to be a bit more excited about those texts and to understand better how they fit in the book of Isaiah. Um, The second thing that I want to do is also an apology, which is actually for a historical error that I made last week. Um, I don't know if you may or may not have caught it, but last week I mentioned that during the last few years of Hezekiah's reign, he co-ruled with his father Ahaz because Ahaz had been isolated due to a skin disease. That was not Ahaz. That was Uzziah, or Uzziah, that had been isolated due to a skin disease. Um, Hezekiah and Ahaz actually co-ruled for the last few years Because if you remember all the way back in chapter 7, when Ahaz, Hezekiah's father, had actually basically given tribute, sent gold and treasures from God's temple to the the Assyrians to basically pay them to help him with the threat from Israel and Syria, that that had actually resulted in the Assyrian Empire coming. And this was a few years before they had totally destroyed and exiled the northern tribes, but they basically shrunk the northern tribes down to just the capital city, and then Syria was wiped out at that time. Which all of that brought the Assyrian Empire and their power and their influence way too close to home for Ahaz's son Hezekiah and the people on the leadership that he sided with, which some commentators call like the Freedom Party or basically whatever. It's, it's the same thing that exists now. You have different political leaders that have different opinions. You had the same thing then. Like when we read the history of Israel, it's easy to think of like they all thought the same, all the leadership thought the same, and then when a king changes, the whole leadership changes. That's not exactly how it worked. You had disagreements then, just as you had disagreements now. So what happened when Assyria came too close to home is that Hezekiah and the leaders that were on his side and agreed with him, what they basically did is they caused Hezekiah to co-rule with his father Ahaz for a few years and basically forced Ahaz into a forced early retirement. So he was like co-ruling, but he was King Emeritus, or however you say that word, which basically means he's king in title only and retired. And then they fully forced him out of power, and Hezekiah ruled on his own pretty much exclusively the last two years of Ahaz's life. And then when Ahaz dies around 715, 716, and Hezekiah is finally completely ruling on his own, that's when he and the leadership actually started actively working on joining alliances against Assyria. So that's what what actually happened, and that's why um, they were co-ruling for a few years. So I had misspoken last week when I said that... um, Hezekiah's father had been isolated due to a skin disease. That was Uzziah, who was his great-grandfather, because that was the first king in the book of Isaiah. Um, but all these historical events, actually, like that, the whole forcing him into early retirement and the Assyrian power getting too close, and then what actually happened also around that time is like uh, the northern tribes and, uh, or sorry, just the northern tribes, around 722, so as hasn't died yet, around 722, the northern tribes are fully destroyed and exiled. And then Ahaz dies around a few years later, around 716, 715. And that's when Hezekiah and the leadership start actively pursuing allies. And around that time, conveniently, is also when a new Egyptian dynasty had just started up that's actively promising help to anybody who starts to go towards rebellion efforts. So all the pieces are kind of lining up for Hezekiah and the leaders to be pursuing all of these alliances. And that's why these last so many chapters, the oracles and the woes, Isaiah has had to again and again and again discourage those foreign policies, those alliances with other powers rather than trusting in God because it's the pot's basically been brewing this whole time where you have Egypt, you have Babylon, you have Judah, you have all the surrounding nations. They're all looking to form alliances against Assyria. 
and they're all doing it without turning to God for wisdom, which is exactly what Isaiah has been pleading with them to do the entire time, which is listen to God, not to their own wisdom. So all that historical context leads us into what we are looking at today, which is Isaiah chapters 36 to 39. This is the largest narrative section in the book of Isaiah, and it covers a few major events. It covers the Assyrian invasion into Judah, which happened around 701, and then it also covers um, Hezekiah's sickness and recovery, a miraculous recovery, in chapter 38, and then it also covers his foolish pride and alliance with Babylon in chapter 39. And you'll notice I keep going back and forth on nations. I'm going to do a, another recap again as we go back into the material. Um, but these events, the, the events covered in chapters 36 to 39 of Isaiah, are also found in a much shorter summary in Second Chronicles 32, which is what we read from. We read the second half of that chapter. If you read the whole chapter of Second uh, Chronicles 32, it covers all of the content that we will be talking about today in a very short one-chapter summary. And why it does that is that Chronicles is very similar to Kings in what it covers in the material, but it focuses more on the hearts of the king and especially what is going on with temple and with God worship. So Chronicles is much more theological. Um, that's why the reading, if um, you're following along with Second Chronicles 32, um, the next verse actually talks about how basically God left Hezekiah on his own and used it as a test of what he would do with the Babylonian envoys and is basically to test his heart. Because that's kind of the theme of Chronicles, First and Second Chronicles, is what's in the heart of the kings? Are they going to be loyal to God? Are they not going to be loyal to God? And also what's going on with worship? There's a lot of long sections in Chronicles about what is happening with worship in the land. Um, so Second Chronicles is a shorter version. And then also in Second Kings chapter 18, verse 13, through chapter 20, verse 21, is almost verbatim the content of Isaiah's 36 to 39, which is actually why a lot of commentators argue that Isaiah wrote both of them. We do know from verses in Chronicles and Kings and here in Isaiah that Isaiah wrote not just the book of Isaiah, but he also wrote a lot of historical um, records and annals of the kings of Israel. So it is likely that he wrote a decent portion, potentially, of the books of Kings and Chronicles, and there's a lot of borrowing of material back and forth in that way. Um, what is interesting is that the events in all three of these accounts, in Isaiah, in Chronicles, and in Kings, all of the events, the invasion, the invasion of Assyria into Judah, Hezekiah's sickness and miraculous recovery, and then also the arrival and the greeting of the Babylonian envoys, all three accounts in the Bible have those events in the same order. Which you think, well, well yeah, but the thing is that's actually surprising because they're out of chronological order. In all three passages, they consistently place these events out of chronological order. The invasion into Judah happened around 701, and Hezekiah's sickness and recovery and the arrival of the Babylonian envoys happened around 704, possibly around 711, but I personally think it's more probably closer to the 704 reading, and I'll tell a little bit about that why later. Um, but the question then is why do all three of these accounts end with Hezekiah's failure? That is a question that we're going to talk about as we go through these chapters. But first, a little bit of background as we come into these chapters, because I know we've come out of oracles and woes, and we've kind of been jumping around in the present and the near future and the far future, and even dipping back a little bit as Isaiah sometimes gives his oracles and woes out of chrono chronological order, kind of borrowing back from stuff he said to make it closer to what he's talking about. But all that to say, the background coming into these chapters is that, like I said earlier, around 716 or 715, um, Hezekiah's father Ahaz had passed away, and Hezekiah began to rule completely on his own. And it was around this time that he had started to look again actively into these alliances with the other nations. And then around 710, the Babylonian period of independence, which they had a few during the Assyrian Empire, um, but the current Babylon, Babylonian period of independence was brought to an end by Assyria around 710. Judah does not seem to have actually been, been involved in this period of independence from Babylon, and that is probably because this period of independence had actually began like a dozen years earlier when Ahaz was still alive. 
So I think the fact that his dad was still alive prevented Hezekiah and the leaders from actively joining that rebellion because we don't have any historical record of Assyria punishing Judah at all for that period of um, independence, that alliance that had been formed at that time. Then in 705 or 704, um, or possibly 712, 711, but I think more likely the later date, Hezekiah seeks alliance with Babylon and Egypt to help in rebellion against Assyria. And Babylon, again, begins another period of declaring independence from Assyria. This one did not last nearly as long as the last one. The last one had lasted about 12 years of independence. This one was put down within the next two or three years. Um, By 703 or 702 is when the Assyrian Empire put down the Babylonian portion of that independence. And this is also why that we read just about Egypt in these chapters. This is why the Assyrian leader is going to mock Judah. Like, why are you relying on Egypt? They don't mention Babylon because the Babylonian independence had already been put down. And it's also why the woes in chapters 28 to 25, warning against alliances with foreign nations, had focused on Egypt coming into these chapters 36 to 39. So that's why all that focuses on Egypt and not on Babylon because Babylon's already been subdued again by Assyria. And then in 701 is when Assyria invades Judah after they've dealt with the Babylonian part of the um, alliance. They now invade Judah in retaliation for their part in the alliance. So we know and we read that Hezekiah was involved in that independent period between Babylon and Egypt and all them kind of teaming up against Assyria. And what we're about to read is Assyria marching into Judah in, in punishment of that in punishment of Hezekiah's part in that alliance. So that's what leads up to the con- up to the content that we're about to read here. So starting in chapter 36, verse 1, we read, In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, and this is about 701, In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. And then in verse 2, it says, the king of Assyria set to Rabshakeh. But I'm actually, there's a portion in Second Kings that inserts some extra material here. Because again, in verse 1, you have the king of Assyria is now invading Judah in response to that alliance. Second Kings 18, verses 14 through 16, kind of are an insertion between verse 1 and verse 2. And what they point out is that at this time, so at the time the Assyrian Empire is invading into the land, Hezekiah sends a tribute, a very large tribute, to Sennacherib as a sign of repentance and submission. Basically, he saw what just happened to Babylon. They've been put down for their part in the alliance. Assyria is now in Judah, and Hezekiah is like, okay, I made a mistake. I shouldn't have been part of this alliance. I'm sorry. Here, take a bunch of money. And what happens is that Hezekiah, or sorry, not Hezekiah, Sennacherib accepts accepts the payment, but then he stays in the land and keeps conquering. Because that's what the Assyrian Empire often did. If you were part of an alliance against them, even if you repented and gave them a bunch of money, they still wanted you to pay, to learn your lesson the hard way, that you should not be in an alliance against them. So he took the money and kept trying to conquer cities anyway, is what's going on. And verse 2 then, which is after this tribute money had already been given to Assyria, we read, the king of Assyria sent the Rabshakeh, from Lachish, which is a city in Judah that, he's, that the Assyrian army is currently sieging and trying to conquer. And then the Rabshka, by the way, is basically a super high-ranking military officer. So he sent an important officer over to Jerusalem with a message to Hezekiah and the people. And he also sends a great army. And he stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And we read that, and we're like, he stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway. Like, why are we so specific? about where this guy is standing. Well, if you go back to chapter 7, verse 3, that is exactly where Ahaz was standing when he was confronted by Isaiah. At that time, Ahaz had already or was about to look to the Assyrian Empire to help him against Israel and Syria. So effectively what's happening is you had at that time Ahaz being confronted in this exact place saying, who are you going to trust, God or Assyria? And now you have different circumstances, different people, but same exact place, Hezekiah being confronted with who are you going to trust, Egypt or God? Same place at the heart, same question. 
That's why it's so specific said here about where exactly this was taking place. So now in the same spot, on the spot of his father's failure, Hezekiah is being put to the test. And what's interesting is that if you read what this um, military leader says in verses um, 4 through 10, he basically ironically argues against the very thing that Isaiah had also been warning Hezekiah against, which he basically argues that it is very foolish to trust in Egypt, for Egypt is going to fail them, which is kind of ironic. It makes you wonder like why Hezekiah was looking to this alliance and putting so much trust in it, because God through Isaiah had been telling him, even his enemies are telling him, like, you can't trust Egypt, but he's still doing it anyway. And we shouldn't put too much emphasis, though, on the fact that the Rabshakeh is doing this, because he also says the same thing about God. He also says that it's foolish to trust in God. And his reasoning is that the Assyrian Empire has taken over and destroyed and wiped out and exiled all of these places, and none of the other gods stood up and defend them, defended them, so why is your God going to be any different? In fact, if you look at the wording near the end um, of what this leader is saying, he basically asks them, you're looking to trust your God? Isn't your God the one that you destroyed all of these altars and high places for? And do you think that we were sent here without a message from that God? Like, we're here to judge you because that God sent us here to judge you, so why are you looking to trust him? Which, all that's kind of interesting because it's, it's kind of true, but it's like a Syria really misunderstanding what's going on because they knew and they had, they kind of kept tabs on their vassal kingdoms. They knew that Hezekiah had been leading a bunch of reforms. Part of the reforms that Hezekiah had done, which if you want to read more about those, go to Chronicles or Kings, um, especially Chronicles. And what Chronicles especially lays out is that Hezekiah had sought to centralize the, the religion and the worship back to where it should have been, which is the temple. Because during his time, especially because of his father, the land was filled with idols and idolatry, all the high places, basically all the places that all the nations around them set up as altars and high places of worship to these gods of the other nations. The same thing was happening in Judah. And Hezekiah had wiped out all of them and sought to centralize the worship. And Assyria, because of how they understood how gods work, they saw that as an attack and a bad thing to do for a god. Because in their thinking, and the thinking of all the nations around Israel and Judah, the more places, the better. Like, the more places you have physical embodiments and representations of your gods, the more places of power that he has. And the more places that you have to meet with him, and, and how the other religions work, to do a give-and-take relationship with him. You didn't want to centralize it all, and that was actually weakening your god to minimize the places that he was powerful, because you showed a god's power in multiple places by putting multiple idols in high places for him to represent the extension of that power. So basically, in Assyria's mind, they're like, you've been actually weakening and angering your God, and your God has sent us in retaliation about that. And they're right that God is sending Assyria in punishment of Judah, but they're wrong about why. So it's just kind of interesting, the interplay here of the different understandings of what's going on. And then if you look to um, verses 11 through 12, basically the leaders ask this leader to speak in Aramaic rather than Hebrew so that the people on the wall won't understand. If you go, um, I think it's in Chronicles, is where Hezekiah, before this arrival, before the message, he talks to all the people and says, take heart, be strong, and do not fear. Our God who is with us is stronger than any army that can come against us. And the people take heart. But then this message comes, and the leaders realize that, yeah, the people might have been swayed by that nice speech by Hezekiah, but now they see the Assyri a portion, granted, not all of it, but like they see a good representation of the Assyrian army. They hear the threats of the Assyrian army. They hear the logic and the argumentation of the Assyrian army, and they realize that this might sway a lot of the people in the city into fear and into doubt. So can you, can you please speak in Aramaic? Like, we understand the trade language of Aramaic. Let's not speak in Hebrew because we don't want to cause panic in the city, is what's happening. And basically, the, the Rebshka, the, the leader, in response is like, do you think I'm just talking to you? He spoke even louder then in Hebrew and taunted the people for trusting in Hezekiah and in their God. And then in response to this, near the end of the chapter, the leaders of Jerusalem give no answer just as Hezekiah had ordered them not to. 
One interesting thing of note, by the way, before we leave uh, chapter 36, is notice in verse 22, Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna the secretary, and Joah the son of Asaph, the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him the words of the Rabshakeh. If you go back to chapter 22, there is a reason that these names and these positions are repeated, I think, like three or four times in these chapters. Back in chapter 22, we had read a prophecy and a promise that Shebna was going to be punished for his pride and his arrogance and his lack of actually being a good steward of the household, and that we read all this basically condemnation language against him, and we read that Eliakim is going to take his position. Well, these names and these positions are emphasized throughout this section here, 36 to 39, to point out that that promise had come true. Eliakim is now the head of the household. Shebna is not. Shebna is just a secretary now. So throughout this narrative, you have this, oh, by the way, God's promises are coming true. Like just kind of a teaser of what's about to happen. And then you get to chapter 37. And in the first few verses, the first seven verses, you have Hezekiah's response to this message from the Assyrian Empire. And basically what he does is, in response to the message, he asks Isaiah to pray. And then God promises that God will cause the king of Assyria to return to his own land and die by the sword. We read in verses 5 through 7, When the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, Say to your master, Thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid of the words that you have heard, with which the young men... Notice the purposeful lack of respect that he gives. Like, this was a very high-ranking officer that came with this message and with, like, a great representation of the Assyrian army. He's like, these young men. Like, don't be afraid of the message of these young men. There's actually a purposeful parallel there between Hezekiah and Ahaz again. Because remember how Hezekiah is being challenged on the same spot that Ahaz was being challenged? Well, basically in this wording to Isaiah, you have purposeful comparisons between God's message to Hezekiah and then God's message to Ahaz. Because God's message to Ahaz had been, be strong, um, trust in me, effectively. And then he's like, don't be afraid of these smoldering stick ends, is basically what he had called the leaders of Israel and Syria. And now you have here, don't be afraid of these young men. So it, there's very similar conceptual wording between the two messages. So it says, do not be afraid of the words that you have heard, which these young men of the king of Assyria have reviled me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him, so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. So that's what you have as the promise from God through Isaiah to Hezekiah. And then what happens in the next few verses here, um, there's actually a lot of historical and logistical stuff that happens real quick here. So in 8, the rapture return and found the king of Assyria fighting against Limna, for he had heard that the king had left Lachish. I'm going to explain that real quick. So basically, the Rabshka, the message, the messenger sent to Jerusalem, returns back to Sennacherib. We're not actually sure, by the way, if he returns by himself. Like, if he's a messenger that goes back and forth and leaves the army encamped around Jerusalem waiting to know what to do, or if the army comes with him, which that might be more likely in light of what we're about to read is going to happen and, like, the logistics that are about to happen. But we don't know for sure if there is still an army around Jerusalem or not. If there is an army around Jerusalem, they're basically there without their leader and without knowing what they're supposed to be doing. So they're basically on standby is what's going on if there is an army around Jerusalem at this point. So then he goes back to Libna because the siege of Lachish is over. And um, Sennacherib in the main part of the army had moved on to Libna. Where these towns are, we're not entirely sure. We have a better idea of where Lachish is than Libna. Libna is either closer to Jerusalem because he's working his way towards Jerusalem, or it is closer to the west because of what's about to happen. So we're not entirely sure there's good arguments both ways. Um, but then in the next verse, you read, Now the king heard, concerning the king being Sennacherib, heard concerning Terhaka, king of Cush. He has set out to fight against you. I'm going to pause there to explain what just happened. So basically, while the messenger, the Rapshika, um, this officer is there in the main camp with Sennacherib, the king of the Assyrian army. They are told, or they hear, that the Egyptians, which is the, the land of Cush, the Egyptians are marching against them. And this Terhaka, king of Cush, um, basically what's happening here is that the Egyptians, who we had read over the last few chapters about the alliance and the envoys and the gifts sent to Egypt to help 
Judah against Assyria in their rebellion. Uh, basically, Egypt is honoring that, kind of. Terhaka, at this time, is a prince, and he goes with a portion of the Egyptian army. So it's kind of like a half-hearted help attempt. And we know from Egyptian and Assyrian accounts that this battle took place in Elteca, or Elteca, I'm not sure how to say that, but that is further to the west in the land of Philistia, closer to the Mediterranean Sea. So that's why the move from Lachish to Libna might have been to the west to kind of start strategically placing themselves to intercept the Egyptian um, contingent that's coming. Um, but we're not entirely sure about that. But we do know that this was really basically a half-hearted attempt by like a small portion of the Egyptian army and like, oh, we're going to help you. And then the Assyrians are like, nah, you're not. <laughs> and they quickly put down that attempt to help Judah. And then in the second part of verse 9, it says, when he, the, the king of Assyria, uh, Sennacherib, when he heard that the Egyptians were coming, he sent messengers to Hezekiah. And then the message he sends is those next couple verses there, um, down to 13. And basically what's going on in these verses is, in response to the news about the Egyptian forces, Sennacherib sends a message to Hezekiah that basically boils down to, yeah, this changes nothing. And he tells Hezekiah that his God will not deliver him, just like the gods of the other kings, that Assyria has conquered did not deliver them. And what's interesting, if, if, if you read through those places that are mentioned, in, uh, especially 12 and 13, and if you look up where they are, none of them are in Egypt. Like, what, basically what's happening here is Sennacherib is sending a message to Hezekiah. He's like, yeah, I know Egypt's coming. This doesn't change anything. I've conquered all these other peoples. And he doesn't even mention Egypt in the message. It's like that's how dismissive he is of this Egyptian help that's coming. He doesn't even mention it. It's like, yeah, this, if this is your hope, good luck, is his message, pretty much. Um, so then, in verses 14 through 20, we have Hezekiah's response to this message. And so at this point, what you need to read into what's going on here is at this point, Hezekiah realizes that he is on his own. Egypt is not going to help. Assyria knows about the help, the help that Egypt is sending, and they are completely dismissive of it. And we know from historical accounts that it was a very quick battle that didn't go well for Egypt. The prince did survive because he's actually called a king in these verses because he later did become a king. So by the time that these verses were written down and um, formalized into the book that we have, that's why he's referred to as a king. But the army that was sent was just demolished, and he basically retreats back home. Um, so in response to this basically confirmation that Hezekiah is on his own. What he does this time is that rather than asking Isaiah to pray, Hezekiah himself doesn't even respond to the messages. He brings the letter and he just goes to the temple and lays it before the Lord and prays. Which, like, should have been what he did originally. But he has finally been brought low enough that he realizes that God is his only hope and he has to trust in God is where he finally is. So rather than asking Isaiah to pray this time, he goes to the temple, lays the letter from Sennacherib before the Lord, and prays for deliverance. He asks God to deliver Jerusalem and to demonstrate that he alone is God. There are also, I think, and this might just be because I've done so recently, a series through Exodus, um, and I also kind of have other biblical things in my, going in my mind, but um, the the wording here just really reminded me of the emphasis through the book of Exodus that the plagues and the deliverance and the Exodus were being done to prove that God is Lord of all. The wording here in this cry, this plead from Hezekiah for God to act is very similar to wording that you see in that account. Because what he says is, yeah, Assyria is pointing out that they've put all of these idols in the fire, but those weren't gods. Like, prove that you are alive and help us, deliver us. So very similar messaging to the theme of Exodus. And then what's also what I also found as kind of a, a biblical theology trace coming through here as well is that the wording here about how Assyria is mocking God and Hezekiah asks God to vindicate himself and to respond to this mockery. It reminded me also of David against Goliath and how when David shows up to the camp and Goliath is mocking God, David says, why are we going to let this stand? He's mocking God. 
Like somebody's somebody's got to fight him. And then when when Saul offers David his armor, David's like, well, this this doesn't fit me. I'm going to fight how I know how. And then when Goliath mocks David, David's like, well, yeah, you can mock me, but I have God on my side, and God's going to vindicate himself. So like this, there's just such a conceptual theme here. And I also point that out because we're going to see a couple other David similarities later. There is purposeful imagery happening here that Hezekiah is starting already to be presented as this greater, better than Ahaz. This, maybe he's the son of David. Like, start, start following that stuff here because it's going to keep building as we go through these sections here. And then in uh, verses 21 to 35, you have God's response to Hezekiah. And in response to this pr- this prayer, God has Isaiah send a message to Hezekiah. And this message, which is seen in the, the poetic stanzas of uh, the second part of verse 22 all the way through 29, um, this message is basically written as if it is to be spoken to Sennacherib. And it basically says, will you mock me? You think that you've won all your victories through your own strength, but I planned this long ago, and I allowed you to do this. I know your every move and that you now rage against me and you mock me, and because of your arrogance, I am going to humiliate you and turn you right back around the way that you came. That's the the Michael version right there of what those verses say. (laughs) So God says that he is going to also, in the next few verses, give Hezekiah a sign, which, remember how how he'd given Ahaz a sign? Like, just continually there are Hezekiah-Ahaz repetitions here. So then he says he will give Hezekiah a sign, just like he gave Ahaz a sign. This time, though, the sign isn't something that will happen before God acts. Ahaz had been given the sign of the Emmanuel, that there is a child who will be born, and by the time he knows basically how to make moral choices, that these things will be so. So there was like an event that happened before the promise that you could watch and kind of match time with. Well, not in this case. It's actually God gives a promise about what will happen three years from now. And why he does that, I think, is he basically gives a promise of something to look for afterwards to show the certainty that he will act. And also as a reminder, after the fact, that when you get to that point, that three-year point, and you're like, oh, yeah, God saw this would happen. Like, it was God who delivered you, and this has happened right now, three years later, as proof that it was him. And what's also interesting as another point of comparison is that both signs, the one to Ahaz and then the one to Hezekiah, both, si- both signs have to do with what and when people will eat. Um, because the one about the Emmanuel is like, by the time he can make moral choices, he'll be eating curds and honey. And then this one is basically about what the harvest will be doing for three years and what type of harvest they'll be eating. The message then ends by declaring again that God will make Sennacherib return to Assyria. He will not attack Jerusalem, and you see in the wording there, he will not even build up a siege mound against it. He, God, will do this for the sake of his name, and you see there in uh, 35, for the sake of his servant David, which I think by extension means for the sake of the line of David and the promises given to David. And then in chapters 36 to 38, we are given three quick verses that show the fulfillments of God's promises. First, we read in 36, And the angel of the Lord went out and struck 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people rose early in the morning, behold, they were, there were dead bodies. So first, the angel of the Lord, and I want to pause here, uh, most because I did a whole Sunday school on this this last summer, uh, but I would argue that this is the second person of Yahweh or Jesus, and that's why it said the angel of the Lord and not an angel of the Lord. This is not given explicitly, though, like I can't, say dogmatically explicitly from this or Kings or Chronicles if you look just at those because all we read is the angel of the Lord did this. So like there's not anything to go on there for a deity claim besides the fact that it's the and not an angel. Um, but as I argued in my Sunday school class last summer, thematically this fits with quite a few other verses of how the angel of the Lord acts and many of those other verses show and define the deity of this the angel of the Lord. So a caution with that, though, is there are a couple texts in the Old Testament that use the angel of the Lord, and I would argue that a couple of them do not actually necessarily point to the second person of Yahweh or Jesus, but most of them do. So you do need to be a little bit careful, but because this one thematically matches with a bunch of other stuff that I don't have time to build here, so you can talk to me more about it later or go listen to that Sunday school, um, but I would argue that this is the second person or Jesus that is acting here in judgment. Um, so either way, The angel of the Lord strikes down 185,000 in the camp of Assyria. 
And then back to something I said earlier, because of the lack of, qu- of clarity about whether or not there currently is an army encamped around Jerusalem, I think it is better probably to understand that this angel went to the main camp of Assyria and killed 185,000 soldiers. This also would, I think, represent the fact that you said that it says they see dead bodies and then immediately you read about the reaction of the king. So I think this is in the main camp of Assyria. Sennacherib sees this and he's like, oh boy. <laughs> so, and that's why you have this immediate retreat from um, Judah here. So seeing this, Sennacherib retreats back to Assyria and does no further campaigns in his lifetime into the area. And then we also read about Sennacherib's death. And it says um, in 37, Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. And he, as he was worshiping in the house of Nisrash, his god, uh, his sons, big names, they came and... my. Bible's not turning just one page here. Here we go. They struck him down with the sword, and after they escaped into the land of Ararat, his other son reigned in his place. Um, so basically what happens here is you actually flash forward 20 years to when Sennacherib is assassinated by his sons. He dies by the sword. And the reason for the kind of shrinking of the timeline here is just to point out that all of God's promises came true. God had said that he would hear a rumor. Well, the rumor came true because he heard about the Egyptians. God had said he would retreat the way he came. The angel of the Lord took care of that one. And then God had said that he would die by the sword. 20 years later, he did, by the, did die by the sword, assassinated by his own sons. Everything that God had said would come true. Which, remember that teaser about Shebna and Eliakim, about how God's promises keep coming true? It's just, again, showing again and again and again, God's promises are all coming true. And, by the way, these last few verses, these all, especially the angel of the Lord killing 185,000 This all seems historically phenomenal and almost unbelievable. But event for event, you can read Egyptian, Assyrian, and later Greek historical records to confirm each event that is talking about here. There are different accounts and theories in the records about the sudden death of so many soldiers and the retreat of Sennacherib, but this honestly just matches the fact that most countries, especially at that time, do not like to talk about their defeats, and they also really don't like to make the gods of other countries look better than their gods. So it is not uncommon or unreasonable that something like this would have happened and we have little writing about it. And then also we are told we are sorry we are not told how the angel of the Lord struck down the 185,000. There are theories and historical writings about plagues or like a rat infestation or something like that. So there's different theories that go around which basically shows that nobody really knows for sure. Um, but just like I argued in Exodus, I wouldn't discount the fact that the angel of the Lord could have used a natural supposed like a natural means supernaturally to cause this great event that had happened. That's not something that is unheard of in the biblical story at all. In fact, God very often uses natural events in supernatural ways to show that he is the one in charge of all of those natural events. He is God. So I wouldn't put it past one of those historical records to possibly be right, that the angel of the Lord used a plague or something to just suddenly wipe out 185,000 people. Either way, the Assyrian army retreats and then Jerusalem is delivered. Sennacherib's own annals document that he conquered Lachish, but make no mention of Jerusalem. They simply read that he has had Hezekiah trapped like a bird in the cage, and then just kind of like peter off. Um, they do not mention any siege ramps or destruction of Jerusalem, which is interesting because they go into like great detail about the siege ramps and the other war tactics of all the other places, but nothing about Jerusalem, just like God had promised. And then what's also interesting is that most historians think that he makes a huge deal out of Lachish. Like, if you read the the uh, Assyrian records of this siege into Judah, like, they make a really big deal out of Lachish. And it's probably because he didn't get the prize that he wanted, which was Jerusalem. So he's basically making a big deal out of Lachish, which, which was an important city, but it wasn't Jerusalem, and it wasn't getting Hezekiah, the king, to be subdued. So he makes a big deal out of Lachish to make it not look so bad that he didn't take Jerusalem which is also very normal for how history is written by nations throughout the world. Um, So this battle, then, is one. Jerusalem is delivered. Um, But what's also interesting, historically, and kind of purposely to end it on a downer, is that this battle was won, but the war was not. Assyrian records actually confirm that Hezekiah remained a vassal king and continued to pay tribute to Assyria after this. He was simply spared the destruction that Sennacherib had intended in retaliation for his part in the alliance. But he was still a vassal king to the Assyrian Empire. And then we get to chapters 38 to 39, which talk about Hezekiah's illness and miraculous recovery, and then the Babylonian envoy. Or sorry, envoy. Um, In chapters 38 to 39, 
Um, we have some timestamps here, but I want to point out some things about the timestamps. So verse 1 says, in those days. But then verse 6 in chapter 38 talks about the deliverance of the city, which had just happened. So we've gone back in time, actually. And then we also read in the opening verses of chapter 39, we read, at, at that time, Merodach Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent envoys with letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he had heard that he had been sick and had recovered. So all the, the, the events of chapter 38 and 39 are tied together. Hezekiah is sick and then recovers, and then the envoy comes in response to that, basically to give well wishes and also, historically speaking, to basically firm up their alliance. And... Um, there is a miraculous sign that we'll talk about in a minute that Second Chronicles actually points out that the envoy from Babylon actually came likely because the sign that we're about to read about was a regional phenomenon that had happened. They're like, what? <laughs> go find out, go find out why that happened. And so all that to say, like these, these two events are tied, 38 and 39, and they're both before the event of uh, 36 and 37. In Hezekiah, or sorry, in Isaiah 38, Hezekiah is very sick. These are the opening verses. Hezekiah is very sick and is told by God through Isaiah that he will not recover. And then as you keep reading, Hezekiah prays to God to remember all the good that he has done, and he weeps bitterly. And then how I like to read this is basically Isaiah had just left the room, and God's like, oh, go back. <laughs> so Hezekiah, or Isaiah turns around, and Isaiah gives another message to Hezekiah who is basically, the message is that God has heard his prayer and he will extend his life by 15 years and then will also deliver Jerusalem from Assyria. And again, the emphasis on the deliverance from of Jerusalem from Assyria puts these events prior to the siege of Jerusalem. And then God also gives a sign that this will happen. And as you read in verses 7 through 8, this shall be a sign of, to you from the Lord, that the Lord will do this thing that he has promised. Behold, I will make the shadow cast by the declining sun on the dial of Ahaz, which some translations are the steps of Ahaz. Either way, I think basically this is like a time-measuring device that Ahaz had come up with, and it involves stairs of some sort. So I'm going to make it turn back ten steps. So the sun turned back on the dial ten steps, which it, which by which it had declined. And I think that's where, in Second Chronicles, you have Babylon responding to the sign in the heavens, and they're like, what just happened? And then they hear that like this Hezekiah had just had this miraculous recovery. They're like, well, go ask him. He might know what just happened. And um, this turning back the steps here, like this, all this is like, what? what? How is that a sign? Well, think about what just happened. Hezekiah is gravely ill. He is about to die. The sun is about to set on his life. And what God does as a sign is take the shadow of the sun back further from the set of the sun. Now, why it's 10 steps and not 15 steps to match the 15 years, I don't know. Maybe there weren't 15 steps. I don't know. But it's thematically what's going on is God is giving a sign to say, you are further from the setting of the sun on your life. And I'm going to show that through the retracing or re retracking of the sun, of the sun's shadow. So we have this sign that is given. And then in 9 through 22, we read a psalm of Hezekiah and then... Um, and then instructions from Isaiah, and then a question from Hezekiah. So this is, again, 9 to 22. 9 to 20, you have this psalm that is given. And then at the beginning of 20, you have Isaiah said, let them take a cake of figs and apply it to the boil that, that he may recover. And then Hezekiah, he said, what is the sign? That should go? And they're like, I thought the sign just happened. Like, what, what's going on here? So I think what's happening is 1 through 8 are the summary of what happened, and then 9 through 22 are additional information, which I think they're also purposely arranged to give a theological message. And what I mean by that is that, um, let me get back to where my, my, my notes here, sorry. So we read of this psalm, and then we read of instructions from Isaiah, then we read a question from Hezekiah, and these are purposely out of chronological order, because Hezekiah did not ask for a sign after the sign had already been given. I think first, the psalm is included to compare Hezekiah again to David. Because think of all the Psalms of David that he wrote. Think of how God had given judgment to David, and then David wrote Psalms of repentance and wrote Psalms of deliverance. They give a purposeful analogy here between Hezekiah and David. Is, is Hezekiah this promised son of David? I think, I think that's why this Psalm is included there. And then after Isaiah's instruction, Hezekiah asks for a sign, unlike Ahaz, who had refused to ask for a sign, even after God had literally told him to ask for one. So is Hezekiah Ahaz's opposite? 
is he the promised son? His life was just extended. So is this maybe a sign that he is the one who will sit on the throne of David forever? And then because of his faithfulness, Hezekiah's faithfulness, and his cry to God, we read that God will deliver the city. Is Hezekiah the promised deliverer? I think all of these additions and the order of this material here is purposefully being arranged so that you're asking these questions. Is Hezekiah the son of David? Is, is he the one? Is he the one? Like that's, that's what the text is purposely bringing this up, bringing this to. But then all of these questions are answered with, with a resounding no in chapter 39. Because in 39, we read that in response to the recovery, and, and as Second Chronicles says, in response to the sign of the heavens, envoys from Babylon are sent with letters and a present from the king of Babylon. And also, again, certainly to firm up the alliance as well. And we read in these verses that Hezekiah gladly shows them all of his wealth, catering to his own pride and seeking an alliance with them that God had definitely and multiple times warned him against. And then when, when Isaiah shows up to ask him who they were and what they had said, Hezekiah explains that they were from Babylon and that he had showed them everything. So in response to this, Isaiah gives a message from the Lord that one day, just as he had showed them everything, Babylon will take everything, including your descendants. And we want to read repentance there. We want to read Hezekiah crying out to God there. But what do we read in this last verse? And Hezekiah also said, um, or sorry, I'm on the wrong chapter here. Let me flip forward and here we go. So then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, the word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. For he thought there shall be peace and security in my days. So is he the Messiah? Is he the promised one? Is he the one who's going to deliver the people? No. He gave into his pride. He gave him to foolish decisions that he knew he wasn't supposed to do. And at the very end there, he shows a complete disregard for his own people. That is not how you want that story to end. But it ends that way on purpose. These chapters are written. And this content is written to build up. We've now built up 39 chapters saying that there is this promised one coming, a better king is coming, one who will deliver is coming, a Messiah is coming. And then 36 to 39, build up purposely, is this Hezekiah? And we're left with a firm answer, no, it's not him. And because of his choices, what is effectively happening is that the line of David has failed. The people are going to go into exile. Babylon is going to bring the one to be the one to bring them there. So 39, how it ends, leaves a question in your mind. Is this the end? Has the line of David failed? Is exile the end of the story? Now we know from the introduction chapters that it's not the end of the story, but that's where it purposely wants you to sit. What comes next? These are the answers that we will look for as the book of Isaiah continues next week. But to close today, I want to think about the chapters that we have just covered. These chapters purposely have a very depressing ending. They are not the ending that you want. And in fact, they're put out of chronological order to not be the ending you want. Because it could have been written, and historically and chronologically, it probably should have been written with the deliverance of Jerusalem to end it. Because that was the last chronological event. But Isaiah, and, and in Second Kings and in Chronicles, they all end with the chronology flipped and failure at the end, highlighting the failure in what otherwise was a pretty good life of Hezekiah. In fact, he has commended so many places in Scripture. But his consistent area of temptation, his biggest failure, is how his story ends. So the this section ends on a very depressing message, but the one depressing message that I don't want you to hear is that God defines you by your failures. That is not the point of this text. The structure of these chapters ends the life of Hezekiah as great and faithful as it was with his greatest failure, even moving it out of chronological order purposefully to highlight this. 
The temptation is to look, or sorry, his temptation to look to foreign alliances rather than God for trust and security was his greatest and most consistent temptation and his biggest failure. Ending the story this way, even after showing a victory in this very area, he had turned to God when the Assyrian Empire was besieged, was besieging Jerusalem, and he knew that God was his only hope. He finally turned to God. But then we flip the, the chronology and we show a failure in that same area at the end. So even after showing a victory in this area, it highlights his failure, which can cause us to ask ourselves, is this, is this how God sees me? If I have an area of consistent struggle, if I have a big failure in my life, is that how God defines me? Is that the end of my story? That is the depressing message that I do not want you to hear. Because no, this story is told in this way not at all for that reason. This story is told to show our need for one greater than Hezekiah. The Old Testament highlights the failures of the human descendants of David to show the need for one who is human but also more. To show the need for one who is God and man. God in our flesh a son of David who is able to do what we cannot do to be perfect and to take our punishment on himself and then raise himself up from the dead in victory over our real enemy, sin and death. The deliverance from Jerusalem, sorry, the deliverance of Jerusalem, of God's people from Assyria through the faithfulness and intercession of Hezekiah cannot be the end of the story because that is not the deliverance that we need. It cannot be the end of the story because that is not our ultimate deliverance. Chapters 1 through 39 are written to show us that what we will read in chapters 40 through 46 is the real solution. It is not this human failing line of David. So no, God does not define you by your failure. God defines you by Christ's victory if your faith is in him. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for this book of Isaiah. I thank you for even the difficult, the depressing parts of it. I thank you that you have given us the entire Old Testament to show us that there is no other hope that we have than you, that you are the one that we have to trust. The entire Old Testament shows nations, people, trying every other way, looking to every other person but you. And I pray that we would take the message to heart and that we realize that you are our greatest need, that we would cry to you daily. I pray this in your name. Amen.